welcome you to the Dominican.net radio. We are live at 1 p.m. today as we discuss with Dominican Jones Murphy. Jones Murphy, as most of you would know, is a former astrophysicist, but for many years Jones worked on Wall Street as a top Wall Street executive. And we have him with us today as we discuss the current situation in the world economy as we discuss, of course, Wall Street greed and uh, what uh, Jones is up to this day. So let me just welcome you, Jones, to the Dominican.net radio. Thank you, Thompson. Good to be with you. Okay. I'm glad that you could join us all the way from Italy. Um, tell me, what are you up to those days, Jones? Uh, these days, I continue to run my little hedge fund, which is really based in Manhattan. But thanks to the wonder of the internet, I can do that from Rome in Italy. So you have you have a hedge fund. And, and what, what exactly, for, for our listeners, what exactly does this fund do? I think up different algorithms and strategies. Um, so I, I'll think about a pattern that I've seen in the markets uh, that happens in the markets Then I'll create a program that's basically a software robot. And the robot buys and sells various things, you know, currencies, stocks, bonds, and things like that to make a profit. And using those algorithms, I manage a portfolio of investments. So you basically invest people's money in the stock market? Well, the stock markets, the currency markets, you know, a bunch of different markets. The stock markets are actually quite small. If you add up all the different stock markets on the planet together, they are less than one-tenth of one percent, for example, of the size of the currency markets. So people think of the stock markets as sort of the market to invest in, in ordinary people, but in fact they are the smallest of the big markets out there. The currency markets are much bigger, bond markets are much bigger, um, commodity markets are enormous, and then there are the derivatives markets, which are have just grown tremendously in the last couple of decades. Right, and, and of course, I, I, I'm assuming that you're, you're an expert in the derivative market, right? Because that's one of the areas that you worked on whilst you were on Wall Street. Yes, I've spent the majority of my career working with big institutions um, like AIG, like Bank of America, Citibank, and so on, inventing new kinds of derivatives. And so I've worked at the really at the most mathematical and complicated edge of that market, which itself is very, very new compared to the older markets. You know, Jones, that's interesting because as an economist, I often blame the mathematicians for wrecking Wall Street, right? Because we had a, we had a whole lot of mathematicians on Wall Street doing those derivative trades that were very complicated. And, and then you were at the center of it. Let's just talk a little bit about your career on Wall Street. You worked, at the time you worked with the Bank of America, you were an assistant to the vice, you were vice president there. And you handled, and in one case you were telling me that in one day you handled almost $11 billion in, in trades. You were basically on the, on the, market, on the um, exchange handling trades for the Bank of America, right? Yeah, these banks, they don't actually trade on an exchange. And that's, by the way, a very big part of the problem. When you think about an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange, there's a central administrative mechanism there that looks at everybody's trades against everybody else. And if somebody is making, is betting too much and is getting over overly risky, the exchange will come to them and say, look, you either have to put up collateral or you have to cut your bets. And it's very simple to understand. For example... Um, if you and I, Thompson, and, and one, one of our friends thought something was going on with the West Indies cricket team and we decided to make some bets, you know, we made some bets with each other, uh, you know, let's say that one of us went crazy and just made the same bet over and over again with everybody they knew and then the bet went against them. Well, everybody's out of luck. They had a bet with this person. The person cannot pay up. And that's essentially what has happened in the past year. You've got companies that made a lot of very big bets they were, the bets were all the same way. The, the housing market collapsed, and they didn't think it would. And, you know, here we are in this mess that we're in right now. So you blame 
in a way, the, the players on Wall Street for the demise of the stock market and what we are seeing currently, right? Yes, very much the structure of the market because it's, it's completely decentralized. There is no central authority like there is in an exchange. It's extremely distinct what happens in, in a single exchange where there is a central authority from what is happening among the institutions. What happens among the institutions? Nobody is looking. Nobody is policing. Someone is making all kinds of bets and nobody knows what their bets are until they collapse. So, you know, a bank like Lehman Brothers suddenly collapses and everyone goes, what happened? And it's amazing to think that this is still happening because we saw it happen before with Enron. You know, during the, the last time you and I talked, during my, my stint with Williams Energy, my company, Williams Energy at that time, lost money to Enron. Many other investors lost billions. Just that it was the biggest bankruptcy in history. People lost billions to Enron because nobody was looking. And that's the situation right now. Even after the crisis of last year, there has been no mechanism put in place to police this market at all. And it's, it's not really the mathematical complexity as much as the complete lack of any kind of regulatory oversight. It's one thing to have mathematical complexity, but it's another thing if there is nobody looking overall to say, what is everybody's position and is there anybody who's posing any risk to the system. And, and just why do you think that that is so? Why do you think that there is not the, the will or the appetite for that type of regulation on Wall Street? Because with, with transparency comes a shrinkage of profits. If, if, if there is transparency and everything that's going on is transparent, people won't be able to make as much money. Because once the price of things are really known and the value of different of these complex derivatives are really known, it's difficult to come to someone and say, hey, why shouldn't you pay twice as much as it's worth? Because the person is going to go and look and say, here's an independent source telling me this thing is worth X, and you're trying to get me to buy it for twice, two, two times that amount, I'm not going to pay twice as much. So with transparency, as there is in the stock exchanges, brokers make less money. And that's the reason they're fighting this this so much, because transparency means they're going to make less transaction profits. Wow. Jones, now... Um it's kind of interesting because you also worked at, at AIG, and AIG, as we know, was one of the companies that received the, so the largest bailouts, $800 billion, I believe, that AIG received. And you worked there for several years. Whilst at, at AIG, what, what kind of work were you doing there during that time? Very much the kind of, of work that I did in, with the other companies, a lot of invention and execution of the most complicated kinds of derivatives. So analysis of the risks involved, the value involved, um, you know, for, for very complicated kinds of derivatives, the derivatives that revolved around bond issues very frequently, you know, uh, a municipality or a state or a, a big corporation would be issuing a bond and then they would want to do derivatives around those bonds to convert them, their, their coupon payments, which is, you know, the interest that they pay, they were always trying to reduce the interest that they were paying on the bond or to change it into a more stable kind of payment or something like that. So we would work with them on those kinds of issues. The, the problem was that, that after I left AIG, um, the company changed. Part, part of why I left, actually, was in a leadership struggle, and, and I was very closely tied to the leaders who were forced out, the people who started the company. And after that, after that leadership change and that takeover, the company steadily became more and more risky in its trading and activities. And it became sharply more risky in the last three, four years. Things, the culture changed a lot there from what it was when I was there. And, you know, we had huge positions when I was there, but the risk was much less. And, and all the risk that really took the company down only happened in the last few years, you know. But th that's just the potential that's there in the system. For any individual company or even a small group of traders within a huge company like AIG, it's only a very small group of people that actually 
did all the damage. AIG itself is an enormous company, but only a small group of people were able to, to ruin a very large company and practically ruin the entire financial system. You know, that is very interesting, Jones. And, and to the average person, to the average, you know, Joe on the street, they think of Wall Street as uh, companies basically sell, they want to raise capital, so they issue, they issue shares and there's a market for those shares, people buy and sell. But that's not where the, the trades happen, right? Most of it is in the derivative market. Now, just explain for the listener exactly how this market works in as in a simple terms as possible how the derivative market works as against the buying and selling of, of shares of um, individual companies derivatives are really bad so uh, for example a, a very simple kind of derivative that, that people might be familiar with are options stock options which are frequently issued to people in companies instead of giving them shares in the company they give you an option to buy the share at a specific price and those options are very much similar to the options you get, for example, if you lease a car or something like that. And at the end, you have an option to purchase the car for a specific price. So an option is, is a, a very simple kind of derivative. And then there are many more complex kinds of derivatives that are much, much more complicated than that. But the simplest kind of a derivative is an option. And, and derivatives ultimately are bets. But the problem is that they are highly leveraged bets. And so in the same way you can make a lot, you can lose a lot. And this is what happened. You know, they bet. The AIG basically were were making a lot of bets, um, betting on on the fact that the housing market couldn't possibly go down, and the housing market can, went down sharply, and they got caught. So, so I think herein lies the problem, right? Because the whole the whole system has become just a, like a huge casino. People are just placing bets, and and the riskier the bet is, the bigger the potential for reward. So. In a way, Wall Street rewards this kind of risk-taking because the, the bigger the risk is, the larger the return. And then you were very much part of that, taking those risks, and that's why you're hired by these companies um, to look at this market and to place bets on different, on different issues. Yes, and, 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 and you know, I could see the potential for prob- problems from the beginning because the way people are paid, the way I was paid, is it incentivizes you to get out there and be reckless. And I, I didn't like to do it because... When you lost, you got fired. And so I would get into conflicts with my bosses and say, the incentive that you're offering me in terms of a big bonus for me uh, is not enough because if I lose, you're going to fire me, my reputation is going to get hurt. And I would constantly have conflicts with managers who were pressuring me to take more risk. And they would tell you, well, look at the big bonus you're going to get if this makes money. And I would say, well, you know. I'm pretty comfortable. The additional bonus you're offering me, for me personally, wasn't that much of an incentive to do something irresponsible. But for many other people, it was worth it because, you know, sure, they got fired. And and I've seen this happen many times, that a guy literally sitting next to me will lose tens of millions in an hour or two. He gets fired. He goes across the street, and two weeks later, he calls me up to do trades, you know, from another very big institution. Wow, wow. And people were just hired guns, just rotating around these institutions, you know, being quite irresponsible with the funds under their, their control. And, and it caused me a lot of conflict with my managers constantly. And, and it's a big part of why I eventually went out on my own, because I, I, I don't like the culture. I think the incentives are wrong, and, and they're guaranteed to cause another explosion. Because right now, nothing has changed fundamentally. Right. Everything is in place. People are being paid right now to take huge risks. It, it cannot end well. Yeah, and, and just in terms of the, of the bonus, just give us a, a sense as to, as to how, how, how big that type of bonus is. They are, they, are extru- they are really enormous because they are proportional to the portfolio that you're managing and the profits that you make on it. So the top hedge fund managers are making just, you know, 
hundreds of millions to billions per year now, the top hedge fund managers. They have enormous amounts of capital um, invested with them, and they make a lot of money, just tremendous amounts of money. They are the highest paid people on earth in terms of working professionals. And I mean, the, the, the amounts we're talking here just astronomically. In fact, you were telling me earlier that in one of those, of those trades, in one day, you handled, uh, was it $11 billion with a B in trades? Yes, and, and those markets have grown tremendously since, since that time. I mean, tremendously this, this since is mind-boggling. It's, it's really mind-boggling. But as you said, the, the, that's really a perverse incentive. And, and, and so it, it rewards those risk-takers. And in the end, you have what happened because that is tied in very much to people tying in all of these different options on the, on the market, on the loan market, which, which then encouraged the banks to go out and give loans to people who could not afford those loans. And then when the underlying low, um, housing market crashed, then all of those papers that were issued on that also, also came tumbling down. Thompson, you made a very important point about the fundamental role of Wall Street. You made a very important point. You said uh, the role of Wall Street was to secure capital for businesses so that these businesses could grow, expand, and deliver goods and services to people and participate in the economy. With the derivatives and the bonus structure, so that, 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 that effort to support businesses and to be, be banks to businesses has just been completely subordinated. The, the dominant part of Goldman Sachs business or any of these big institutions is being a hedge fund. AIG became, AIG went from being about the biggest insurance company in the world or close to being a very large hedge fund with an insurance company attached to it. You know, so this means a tremendous amount of additional systemic risk there that one institution can pull other institutions down. The reason AIG got the bailout wasn't because of AIG. It was because of all the other institutions that would have gone down if AIG had gone down. Right. Okay, you are listening there to an interview with Jones Murphy. Jones Murphy is a Dominican, um, but Jones is currently the, he's the founder of a Vector Fund, an, an investment fund out of Manhattan. Um, Jones was also at one time a vice president at Bank of America. He handled billions of dollars in trades on the New York Stock Exchange. And we're talking about the, what happened, you know, the, in terms of the culture of Wall Street. And Jones, at the time that you were on Wall Street, you were one of a very few black executives, right? It's not a common thing to see black people at those very high levels of Wall Street, right? No, it's not at all. There's very little diversity at all. And, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty conservative kind of industry. Very surprisingly so for an industry that you would think would be very meritocratic and based on results. And you can see what, why that is when you see what happens and you see the kind of foolish decisions that people make, that it's not really based on merit. It's really much more based on networking and sort of who you know than it is on the results that people deliver. This is very, very dangerous when you're talking about the center of your financial system. You know, and that's another thing that really has that good regulation would pressure institutions to do. You know, when you're under pressure to make money legitimately instead of playing these crazy casino games, the incentive to hire a drinking buddy has to go down because that person is just someone that it's much less rewarding to you to just hire your friend, pay him a, lo a lot of money to do foolish things, uh, and then the two of you maybe get a great bonus for a couple of years, and then when everything blows up, the two of you walk away, which is a lot of what goes on right now. Um, so definitely there's a tremendous lack of diversity, there's a tremendous lack of women even, you know. Um, I mean, I, only, I can only remember, I remember interviewing less than 10 women as a manager in terms of my hiring. I cannot ever remember interviewing... <laughs> 
just interviewing, let alone I never, I never had a chance to hire a black person. I never interviewed one. You never interviewed yeah. any, any blacks to hire? Never interviewed one. And I interviewed people for, to hire in my groups. I managed many trading groups. Never never got a chance to actually even hire a black person. It's a very closed world. Now, yeah. just why, why is that? So is it that the blacks are any less competent, or is it just the culture of Wall Street that kind of precludes or prevents blacks from kind of breaking in blacks and women? It's a little bit of everything. You know, there's a sense of intimidation out there among blacks that, you know, this is a world that, they think they, they feel like they they need they, they don't know enough about it and they cannot compete with the people that are already there um, there's perhaps not as much of a culture of pursuit of money I think among the various black cultures out there it's it's not as intense that this desire to pursue you know huge amounts of money as it is in some other cultures um, so it's a, a little bit of different factors and then at the end finally a lot of the personal networking with the recruiters and things like that you know, blacks are disadvantaged in that. Once it gets to a social networking situation, you know, blacks get disadvantaged there as well. Quite interesting. Um, Jones, let's talk a little bit about your time at, at, at William, the Williams Company. Uh, because you, you left Wall Street, you were hired by Williams Company. Because of your, of your experience on Wall Street, you were hired by the, by the Williams Company. The Williams Company is the second largest um, provider of natural gas in the United States. So it's very huge on the West Coast in particular. And you were hired there to handle their, their risk management, right? Right. What happened at, at Williams? Can you just give us a sense as to what happened? Because, and the reason why I'm bringing this up, because I don't know if all our readers remember, but we had an article uh, a couple of years ago in which you, you effectively blew the whistle on Williams. And it was a, it was a, a front page um, issue in the New York Times. And um, you certainly came, in a lot of ways, came into prominence there in terms of, of the public knowing about, about you and what you were, you were doing. So just for our listeners, can you give us a sense as to what exactly you were involved in doing? And then we'll have a discussion about what, what took place um, sure. in your time at Williams. I mean, just to give you a little bit of a chronology, after um, AIG, first I went to Citibank and became a trader there. Then I went to Bank of America and became a trader there. And then I went to uh, Williams from Bank of America. What happened at Williams was that I was managing all of the risk that was not um, an energy risk. Williams was primarily an energy trading company, but in the process of trading energy, they acquired huge risks of all kinds. So, for example, in the process of trading natural gas in Canada, they had huge Canadian dollar uh, assets, and as a Canadian dollar would move against the U.S. dollar, there were big risks. And if you remember, in the late 90s, the Canadian dollar went down tremendously against the U.S. Right, for a while there. And so they were getting hit on that. They had assets in Indonesia. And you remember there was the Asian crisis in the late 90s. Again, a big hit there. So they felt like there was a need to manage those kinds of risks. Uh, the, the risk that really preoccupied me the most and the one that really came out in the story was credit risk. First, we were involved with the California situation. So we had a lot of credit exposure. As you, When you do trades with people, you build up credit risk with them. So in, in a sense, this was a microcosm of what, what has just happened last year. The crisis last year was primarily a credit crisis. People didn't pay their mortgages. A lot of securities that were based on those mortgages because they would package them together and make these crazy derivatives, then the people who bet on those derivatives couldn't pay their bets. And so it was ultimately all a credit crisis. And that's what we faced in California. The utilities in California, as the energy there became more and more expensive uh, because they had a record hot summer and then a record cold winter back to back, back, very close. And it just jammed them in terms of the energy prices. And then there were games being played by the energy companies, including Williams itself. The traders were 
manipulating the, the market itself, taking the energy out of the state, selling it back in, and playing games like that with electricity and, and also with natural gas. But in the process of this, the utilities were running out of money, their credit was going bad, and it ballooned to billions of dollars. And I was just constantly in, in conflicts with my management about doing things to protect the company against the creditors. You know, they, it's just something that, that people weren't thinking about. There was just not that strong a culture and a sense that, that things could go wrong. And, and that was really the core of, of what happened. Eventually, Enron did go under. They lost a lot of money, and that's how it burst into the media. But, Jones, you, you, you did warn them about Enron, right, even before. Like, you, you, you saw it coming because I, I remember clearly that at the time you were called teachers as, as warning your managers, and they, they effectively laughed you off because they were, at the time they were making large amounts of money, and they simply dismissed you. as. And I think one of them even said that you did not quite understand that particular world, that, that your area was in risk management, and you did not quite understand, and probably that's why you were talking that way. But you actually saw the risk from Enron long before its demise. It was very bad. I mean, I, I was sitting in a room. I remember sitting in a room with 23, uh, 23 other traders, senior traders, all managers of trading groups, directors like me and so on. And everyone except me thought I was crazy. Everyone except me thought I was crazy to think that Enron could possibly go under. Incredible. And they, they thought that the government would bail Enron out in the way that the government came in with AIG. And that's another thing, too. A lot of these people... You know, they have a very strong sense that the government is, is going to come in and protect them from the bad things that they do. And so they will do reckless things. And, they, and in closed doors, behind closed doors, and I can guarantee you it was the same at Lehman Brothers and at Bear Stearns, while they were doing their reckless stuff, they were saying the government is going to bail us out. And, and they tried to get the government to bail them out. AIG tried and succeeded. The other ones did not succeed. That's interesting. Now, Jones, because Williams, Williams actually brought you in as a director, right? And, and yes. yet, when you were giving them advice, and so it seems that they, were kind, they, they resented that. And, and I'm wondering how much of the fact that you were not, of, you know, you're not in the white, white ball man's club, but also I think from, from listening to you and listening to your discussion, you seem to, be, to not fall into that same, same excessiveness of, of greed and so on, and that you, you more or less, you, you were kind of more patient in, in hedging your bets and, and, and in being cautious. And you were up against a culture that was just the more money they can make, the higher risk they can get. And, and, and so how much of that played in terms of your cautiousness and your, the fact that you were, in fact, probably not from that, from that, from that um, particular club? Everything played a part, you know, everything came together. And it's like everything in life is a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you know. Even the, the whole subprime crisis, when you look at it, there were many factors that played a part. The, you know, the, the conservatives are right that the Community Reinvestment Act pressured banks to lend to people that didn't have enough money. But then, you know, it wasn't Community Reinvestment Act that, that made people package those terrible loans into into bonds and other derivatives, and then call them AAA when they were obviously not. And then, you know, so you have, there are many different layers of responsibility for what happened. And it was the same with me and Williams. You know, being the only black person in sight didn't help, definitely. I was an outsider, psych, you know, socially and, and culturally. But then being a, a, a cautious person that looks at risk and says, this risk is real. You know, especially after we had just gotten clobbered when the California utilities defaulted. We just gotten clobbered and, and we didn't know when we were going to get paid on billions of dollars and immediately after this here we were doing the same thing again and it just boggled my mind that we could take such a big hit and people wouldn't learn from it and say hey you know this, this risk is real and let's pay attention to it 
I had people, in fact, in, in that same meeting I was telling you about, I had two people personally bet with me $1,000 that Enron would not go under. Wow. I, because I said, hey, if you're going to bet uh, hundreds of millions of this company's money, I want everybody in this room to bet with me personally $1,000 that Enron is not going to go under. Take it out of your own pocket. And a couple of people actually accepted. Most of the people didn't. And I said, you don't want to bet your own money on something, and you want to bet hundreds of millions of a company's money. You know, this tells me that there's something going on in your mind that, that's illogical. Be consistent. Put your money where your mouth is. If you say you really believe that Enron is so great and it's so sacred and it just cannot go under despite... I mean, at that time, Enron was restating results. Their stock had plunged 90%. Something funny was going on there. And, they, you know, they just said, I just had to be wrong. I just had to be wrong. And it, it, it became a mob mentality where once a couple of people said it, then everybody followed them and nobody would agree with me at all. And then, so basically, that, that kind of puts you on the outside. So it was very yes. difficult for you to make. Now, just I want to read from an, an email, one of the emails that you, that you wrote to, at the time, the head of your human resource department. And I quote, we're getting up to over a year now, and this money has cost us something like $50 million in interest costs on funding the $800 million hole in our balance sheet. I would have hedged that risk for much less than a $50 million bonus. Now, yes. is that the kind of numbers we're talking about in terms of bonuses, that, that people do, in fact, make that kind of money? Oh, no, that's small potatoes these days. You know, the top hedge fund managers are making $500 million, a billion. Yeah, and the numbers now have become much larger. And it's escalated tremendously in the last, in, even in the last five to ten years, the escalation just keeps going. And now, post the crisis, you would think it would have slowed down, but it has not at all. The bonus pools now... I think it was the fourth best ever in history. But, but how is that possible right after these guys hammered the whole financial system so much? Yeah, interesting. Now, Jones, the, the, the other issue that kind of, kind of, if I would use that word, got you into hot water was the fact that you, you in fact, the, revealed that the company at the time was more or less colluding to, to force prices up. Yes. Uh, and in a way, you, you, you were like a whistleblower, right? You, you basically told on that company. Yes. And, and for that reason, was that the reason why you were, you were kind of forced out of the company? No, no, no. The, the, I was after. forced out for being right about Enron, specifically for being right about Enron and embarrassing my boss. So on the day Enron went bankrupt, my boss called me in with a human resources person and fired me. Okay, so in a way he was kind of blaming you, right? Um, he, he, he was just saying, we can't get along. He basically said, you know, we have a personality conflict, we can't get along. Uh, you're embarrassing me in front of other people. And I, this is intolerable, and that was it, you know. And I told him, you're making a very big mistake for the company and for yourself personally. And, and it, it turned out to be true. Oh, interesting, interesting stuff. Now, Jones, this is, this is fascinating, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, how did you end up in the, in the world of finance? Because I remember you were, you were initially, you were an astrophysicist. You were actually studying black holes, I understand, I understood. Yes. Right, so you, you, you were, you were in, it, it was in Caltech. And you were, you, yes. were, you were an astrophysicist studying the heavens, and then you moved. Uh, what made you make that transition into the world of international finance from being a physicist? You know, I, it's, a lot of credit for that goes to my brother, Albert, you know, who you know very well. He's an economist, and he's actually a professor of finance. And he used to have economics books when we were in, at Cifocol, and I used to read his books. And I got interested in the world of economics and finance that way from reading his books. And then I, I followed it up slowly 
over time, as even as I was studying physics, I was continuing to learn about, you know, what was going on on Wall Street, what was happening. And I, I just took a leap. You know, I just took a jump. I just, I just applied <laughs> and uh, got the job. Wow, that's interesting. And I guess the fact that you were a mathematician as well, and, and that's obviously helped because they were looking for mathematicians that could understand those derivative, um, those derivative trades. Now, let's just talk And at that time, I, w- I would say, at that time, that was very new. And I was very isolated, but it, it changed a lot. A lot more people came in after me. Yeah, and you know, Jones, um, and if you're just joining us, we are talking to Jones Murthy. Jones Murthy is from Dominica, a former vice president of Bank of America and a, a Wall Street trader, one of the few black executives to function on Wall Street at that level. Um, Jones was also an astrophysicist um, studying the black holes. Jones, tell us a little bit about your time as an astrophysicist. Well, you know, I, I um, did research at Bell Labs. I was a member of technical staff there. And really, I concentrated a lot more on, on quantum optics, you know. And so I, I, I helped out with experiments studying how to squeeze light, which is to put it into a, a kind of a funny state where it can carry more information because those were the early days of fiber optic cables. Um, you know, and I found the work very interesting, I must say. But I just, at some point, just wanted to do something a little bit different. But I would say that my time with AT&T Bell Laboratories was very interesting. My time at Caltech certainly was very interesting. I met very interesting people. And it was just fun to go around the different departments and talk to different people in different fields. Um, you know, we had the world's leading expert on time travel. You know, it was just an amazing experience for me. And we had all these Nobel Prize winners in different fields. So it was, it was very interesting. And I liked it a lot. But then my, my interest drifted towards business and, and towards uh, doing something different. It's fascinating. Is there any chance you will ever go back to that, to that field, go, go back to the world of, of physics and, and the stars? And I, w- I would never say never. You know, it's something that's fascinating to me, something very close to my heart and my origins intellectually. So definitely I would not rule it out at all. Jones, let's talk a little bit about your, your, your origins. We, in fact, we have a very interesting, interesting story between us. We started our, our high school career together. In fact, we sat on the same bench at the Academy 101, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, that was quite, that was quite in, interesting. We were both, at the time, I think we were both younger than the, other, than the other students. We were both at the age of 10, starting our high school careers. And it, we were put together for a whole year. And I must admit that... that um, we were kind of opposites because you were the, the active one. I remember you used to do something. I don't know if you remember this, but you would you would have a you would be drawing practically throughout all the classes. You were constantly drawing, and you had a way of, of drawing a man. And you would put the pencil inside. You would wrap the the, the the paper on the pencil, and then you would move it back and forth, and it would give the effect of the guy running all along. And I remember all of these little, little things that you were doing doing, 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 doing doing you know in the classroom. Yeah, I, I think these days they would probably call me uh, attention deficit or something, you know, because I was so troublesome and so energetic and so active and my mind was always moving. Luckily, I had you there to be a calming influence, even though we were the two youngest kids in the class. Right. Um, but I remember those days very well as well. Um, and I just remember being just such a troublemaker and so active and so energetic. I was the one always going to the principal's office, unlike you. <laughs> yeah, I know, and, and it was quite, it was quite interesting. But I, you know, I, and since I mean, I've, I've observed your, your, you know, your career, um, you continued at the, at the academy, and you actually did your, your O levels in fourth form, right? I, I, I recall. I, I started them in fourth form, but then I did a bunch more in fifth form. Fifth form, and then you also was, if I recall correctly, you were studying German on your own at the time, right? 
Yes, I, I would study different languages. I studied Greek. I remember teaching myself Greek and German and so on while we were in class together. Yeah, because I mean, even studying as a ten-year-old, I would always just teach myself something. I remember I was teaching myself statistics when we were sitting together. Yeah, and I think that was part of, of of the thing because whatever was going on in the classroom, this was stuff that you had already done and so on. Because you were originally from from Mahu, your your father, um, John Smurfy, by the same name, also taught me mathematics at the academy. So your, both of your parents, they were teachers, right? Yes. It, all right. So so you came from that kind of background and and um, and progressing. From the academy, you, we then went on to sixth form. Now, sixth form is what at the time was a two-year course of study, but you did yours in one year. So that's where I think our, our we started because you completed and got all your A-levels, all, all A's, and got the Island Scholarship in. That was in 1981 or thereabouts. Yes, that's right. Right. And, and then, but just at, at that time as well, you, in addition to being offered the Island Scholarship, you also offered a, a scholarship from, from UWE, I recall, right, and several universities in the United States. Yes, I came first in the UWE scholarship exam in the Caribbean. Although the, other, the, the person who came in right after me was Peter Banis, as I recall. Um, right, so two Dominicans right. actually talked the polls. Talk in the that poll, right, that's, that's correct, that's correct. That was in 1981. And then you, so you, you left Dominica, you were, you, were, you were given the island scholarship, but did, did you use the island scholarship or did you get another scholarship from another university to study in the United States? I did States? use the island scholarship. All right, yeah. and then which, which college did you study at initially? Initially, I studied at Iona College, and then I transferred to City College of New York. Okay, and then you went on to Caltech and and yes, and, and, and I went from City City to Caltech. Yeah. Okay, that's that's excellent, Jones. That's quite a, a fascinating fascinating journey that you've had, and and um, quite intriguing. Let's let's talk a little bit about Dominica. But I know that you also follow very closely the land of your birth, and obviously your your parents and your family in Dominica. What do you make of Dominica's current situation in terms of where it is as a, as a, as a country? Um, you know, I, I feel generally pretty good about Dominica. You know, relative to comparable countries, Dominica has developed tremendously. I mean, I haven't been there for a long time, but the last time I was there, which was about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, I came back for Carnival with a group of people um, that included uh, Fitzroy St. Rose and so on. That was the last time I saw him, actually, uh, before September 11th. And, you know, we had a good time. But uh, just looking ar around, I was very happy with the development of the island. I've been very happy with what I've read about the general development of the island. I, I think it's safe to say that Dominica has, however, fallen short of its potential. And a lot of that is due to the talent that we just export on such a sustained basis. You know, it's a brain drain. It's the old problem that the island had. And my hope is to see that somehow reversed and to see the island tap into these talents. I think there's a sense, uh, and there was that sense was very strong when I was leaving. You know, I had Minister of Government telling me, there is no place for you in Dominic. Leave. Don't come back. We have no use for you. And in fact, um, this place is, ba is bad for you and you're bad for Dominica. I mean, I, was get, I got very strong messages like that. And you can't do that with your talent. You know, I mean, that's how, not how rich countries got rich. That's not how an island like Singapore went from poverty to where it is now. You, you have to keep your talent. You have to use it. Even if people are spending a lot of their time overseas, now with the internet and travel improved so much, I really feel like Dominica should, can make a better, effort, a 
better effort to tap into the talents of overseas Dominicans. And, and I, 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 will, I want to agree with you on, on that. I think that there is that sense that we are, we are lost to Dominic, and I don't believe that that is the case. I believe that with the kind of talent, I mean, after all, these were our nurturing years. Dominica gave birth to us and nurtured us, and, and, and we can certainly give back. But I think it, it also calls on the part of the policy makers, though, to, to make that effort to reach out. And I, I'm, I'm seeing enough of that, enough of that reaching out, you know, to us and to, and to people. Well, there's a strong sense on their part that the foreigners they deal with, non-Dominicans, are simply more competent. And, and, and you have to wonder how many times will they watch, you know, the corruption, the, the criminality in these developed countries before they understand that, that there is not some magical greater competence looking on Wall Street or anywhere else that, that Dominicans cannot do themselves, you know. These people are not magically superior to us. And any expertise they have, we can acquire collectively. And, it, okay, it may take decades or whatever, but, you know, as a country, you make a plan to acquire whatever expertise you need. You go after the different types of expertise you need. You tap into that expertise where it exists among your expatriates, and you pull it in and you make a plan to use it. But there is no magical expertise among non-Dominicans that Dominicans cannot have. This is just completely false. There's nothing Dominicans cannot learn to do for their country that foreigners can magically come and do for us. That, that's just false. But it's a very strong psychological mindset among Dominican policy makers. Yeah, I think part of the, of the problem might, might be that they link everything to pay. So you you get comments like, you know, we cannot pay you or you're overqualified and so on. And, and I think we've made that mistake. And, and a lot of people have actually run away from the country because of those types of attitudes. Yes, yes. And, and, and the truth is, a lot of Dominicans have such strong sentimental ties to the island that they will work there for expenses and they will just come in and do projects and work on projects from a distance and consult and give expertise for, for, for nominal compensation or nothing at all. Uh, there are Dominicans I know who would pay to have Dominic, you know, so that's just not a valid objection to using the expatriate talents. And if there are any policyholders listening, call me. You know, I'm here and I want to talk to you and I want to help. So, so... And I had a recent experience where I, I tried to contribute and, and mysteriously all of a sudden, you know, everything got hung up and everything disappeared and they made some other choices. Um, that was very disappointing to me and it's very concerning. You know, who, who do you think you're talking to that's more worth more to Dominica than me? You know, and, and collectively than us, the expatriate Dominicans. Who, who are these people that you think are so valuable to Dominica that you don't want to talk to us? And, and that seems to be a, a recurring pattern in my own experience as well, that you'll find this constant refrain that, okay, foreigners are better. Who are these people? I saw you guys grow up. You know, who are you guys? You don't have the money. You, you don't have the expertise. And, and this constant going to the foreigners. And as you said, it, it, it happens over and over again. And we keep getting burnt every time. And I hope we can learn our lesson and, 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 and the willingness to help. And in fact, I was, I was about to ask you if in terms of your current work and what you're doing, in terms, is, is, isn't there a way you can help? For example, isn't there a way that you could help uh, even the country itself in terms of... There are ways that I can help. There are people within Dominica who are making a tremendous effort to connect me to Dominica and I thank them and they, they know who they are. They, they really tried their best. And then there are policymakers above them that, that kill, kill the effort. And those people also know who they are. And you need to reflect on what you're doing, you know. You need to reflect on, at the end of the day, no matter what short-term gains you make, you know, life is finite, we will exit the planet, and you have to ask yourself what legacy you're going to leave in terms of your Dominica or the future of Dominica for your children and your grandchildren. And ask yourself if, if you feel like you really gave your best effort to the country. 
Yeah, very, very, very well said, um, Jones. You know, I, as I said, we, we are talking to Jones Murthy. Jones is from Dominica, from the village of Mao, and um, he, for several years, worked on Wall Street as a top executive on Wall Street, working for groups like AIG, Citigroup, and Bank of America. He also worked for the Williams Corporation, which is one of the largest um, energy companies in the United States. And before that, Jones was an astrophysicist, believe it or not, um, studying the phenomena we know as black holes. But he gave all of that up for a career on Wall Street and in the, in the, in the business world. Um, Jones, let's talk a little bit for the rest of the time we have. If we can talk about what's happening now in the economy, what, what are you seeing? What do you see happening? For, for a long time, Wall Street has been kind of moving sideways. At certain times, it, it, it kind of speeds up, but it's moving sideways. What uh, are you seeing in terms of the outcomes for the economy in general? Are things going to turn around within the next 6, 10, 12 months? What is your own take on what is happening now? It's a very dicey period because regulation has not been improved at all. So everything that was in place before when the, when the economy collapses in place now, you've got the unregulated casino, um, you've got an incentive structure of mega bonuses being paid for mega risks, and you have a financial system that has really shifted away from bankrolling businesses to produce goods and services to, to really concentrating on making big bets and, and the whole casino industry. You cannot build a stable economy on betting. You know, at some point, you know, there has to be betting, but it has to be betting on real businesses, investing, giving people capital. You have, you have an ongoing, very, very serious capital crisis where banks and financial institutions are not lending to real businesses. At the same time, you have record bonuses being paid out, out of you know, and out of these big bailouts, the best, fourth best bonuses in the history of Wall Street in, after, just after one of the worst years since the Great Crash and the Great Depression. That, 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 that there's something illogical there. And just looking forward, this system has to come back to another crash again. So it's, it's a very worrisome situation in a macro level. It's very unstable. And what happens in the U.S., is so important to the rest of the world that other countries have to really pressure the U.S. to do something about regulating um, the betting and con bringing it under control, putting in the incentives to shift people back towards, you know, really concentrating on real businesses. And I say this as a trader, that that's a professional better, you know, and, and that's what I do. But what I do cannot be the center of the economy, or, and it has to be done in a responsible way that doesn't take on huge risks, you know. As, as my own business, I don't have any incentive to do the crazy things that people do when they're working for a big institution because nobody's going to come and give me a huge bonus. And then when I crash, you know, I, I can't just walk across the street. So it's, it's very different. But for the people at the big institutions, it's like a revolving door. They move from one institution to the next. And if all their transgressions are forgiven the next week. But, but Jones, why is there that lack of, of will, you, th you think, uh, to regulate Wall Street? Because it seems that that is a very popular refrain among Joe public. The public seem to want more regulation. They are disgusted at those huge bonuses that keep being paid even after, after this crash. Yet, there seems to be very little political will. Is it that the, the lobbies are, are so powerful? Or is it that Wall Street rules so supreme that 
even Wall Street cannot be um, brought under some type of regulatory control? Well, it's very tricky because you have a lot of conservative voters who elect a lot of conservative politicians who do not accept that there's anything wrong with Wall Street. They just think that maybe there were too many um, loans to black people or poor people or something like that, and that caused the problem. They don't, they don't accept that when you have rating agencies taking a, a, a very poor quality bond and calling it AAA, they don't accept that that should be, be prohibited. They don't accept that banks should be prohibited from taking these risks or that there should be some sort of central credit agency looking at overlooking everything that the banks do and, and, and warning and ordering them to stop when they take excessive risks. So there, there's a very solid, big group of conservative people, and it, it doesn't just include all the Republicans. It includes a lot of the more right-wing conservative Democrats who oppose regulating the financial industry. In fact, the Republicans proposed legislation to cancel the existing regulation now. <laughs> this is amazing. Within five years, to remove completely all of the existing financial market regulation in five years. A guy actually seriously proposed this in the U.S. Congress, which for me is an incredible reaction to a near Great Depression. But that's, that's, that's philosophically, they feel like any restriction on financial markets is bad. And, um, you know, really these guys should be permitted to pay each other big bonuses for nothing and everything will just work out. And it didn't happen in 1929. It's not going to happen now. Yeah, and it seems to me that there is also that irrational fear of government. And it, if there is ever a rule for government, there is a rule for government within Wall Street. But Wall Street is, is being put up as the, the very center of capitalism. I mean, if you talk about free market and wheeling and dealing, Wall Street is it. And people seem to be afraid philosophically to have government impose some restrictions, but that is very, that's exactly what is needed to prevent what we see happened um, a couple of years ago from happening again. But from everything that you're saying, it will happen again. It, it, it will happen again. It is guaranteed to happen again. Wow. This is, this is, this is just really, really fascinating. And, um, you know, one wonders what is going to happen. What will it take, you know, for the politicians to get it and, uh, and for them to come around? Uh, to, to I'm very concerned because if you look at what, what brought regulation in after the Great Depression was... The Republicans got crushed politically. The Democrats took over 80% of the, the Congress. And Franklin Roosevelt had powerful majorities that supported him in what he's doing. What you see here is very, very different. You know, the Democrats have a theoretical majority, but a massive number of the most right-wing Democrats are, vote like Republicans. So it's really closer to 50-50, or maybe even majority Republican. And they block everything, any efforts to regulate the markets at all. So you have a very different situation. The country is more, much more right-wing and much more anti-regulation. They, they say they're anti-government, but that's false because, they, you know, it's not that they oppose government per se. If you ask them about military spending or something like that, they'll tell you, well, you know, instead of 7,000 thermonuclear weapons, we should have 10,000. Uh, you know, instead of a budget, which is currently, the military budget of the United States is equal to that of the rest of the planet, they want it to be twice the size of the rest of the planet. Uh, you know. Right. So they're not against government per se. What they're against very specifically is restricting the activities of rich people. But those activities are very dangerous to the ordinary economy. Huge numbers of people have lost their jobs because people placed bad bets in an unregulated fashion. Yeah, I but, they, I think but now you have a big constituency, and unlike in the days of Franklin Roosevelt and the Great Depression, you have elements like Fox News and so on that are reinforcing these things, using racism and things like that, to really whip these people up into a very solid political block that's a lot more difficult to break than it was in 1929. So I'm, I'm very pessimistic and concerned, actually. Yeah, you know, like you, Jones, I am, I am very, I mean, 
because I, I've been listening especially to that debate on, on healthcare and people, people talk about government takeover and they make it look like this is the worst thing that could ever happen in the United States and some of the same, very simple talking about government um, takeover they're on Medicare but they don't see that you know so it's kind of interesting you know you, when you have those right as you said and now we have all of these right wing blogs and, and you have Fox News that is just so, so relentless you know so relentless in his drive to, to give people a particular point of view and people are locked into looking at this one point of view. And in the end, we have very little that has been done. And even if the, the, um, Obama wanted to do something about it, it would be very difficult for him to get it through. Yes, I mean, I, I don't like to give people investment advice, but I will say this. Be, be afraid. Be very afraid. You cannot trust in the stability of the system, so diversify your investments as much as you can. Uh, especially if you're an older person, make conservative investments. This is not a good time for you to go and really swing for the fences and make aggressive investments. A younger person, definitely. If you're if you're a 20 to 30 year old, you you will you can go through a crash, come out, and have decades to recover from it. If you're about 50 and looking at retirement in the next decade or two, you need to be much more conservative and not to be so invested in stocks. You know, really. Start looking towards bonds, more solid assets, um, hard assets that are not as volatile. And very importantly, diversify yourself. And when I say diversify, I don't just mean diversify by industry. You know, for example, you invest in New York Stock Exchange, you invest in NASDAQ, stocks or tech or healthcare or whatever. I mean, diversify out of the U.S. dollar entirely. Invest some of your money in, in other areas of the world, in Europe, in Asia, in Latin America, and so on. Even in Africa. Africa gives the best investment return. So, uh, you know, diversify yourself and be conservative if, if you're older, an older person. And don't trust in the system, system stability, especially in the next couple of decades. Uh, I think this, this, this problem has not yet worked itself out. And if there is not regulation, we are guaranteed uh, another big crash in the next decade or maybe even less. Very interesting. Now, in the current um, environment, Jones, which of these markets appear to be to be doing the best? Is it the commodities? Is it the currency market? Is it the stock market? Which of these of these markets appear to be giving the better returns now to to investors in the short term? You, you cannot trust anything because there is always lurking risk, and and you don't know who is hiding what. But there are people hiding all sorts of problems still, very much so. So you have a lot of banks still hiding a lot of bad mortgages. What, what the Congress did, they changed the accounting standards away from mark to market, which was where you had to book an asset at its value that it's recently sold at. So they, a lot of these banks are repossessing houses, and if they had been forced right now to mark those houses at their right value, a lot more banks would be bankrupt right now. So what, what the Congress of the United States did was to tell them, uh, you don't have to market at its current price. It's okay. Well, you know, the house is still not worth very much. And at some point, right. you're going to want to try and unload that house, and you're going to have to recognize what that real price is. Right. And, and you can see there's not any recovery in the housing market coming around anytime soon. It's going to take a while. So you have a lot of people hiding a lot of problems, you know. And um, Warren Buffett, who's one of the greatest traders, says, you know, you, you never know who's been swimming naked until the tide goes down. <laughs> interesting, inter interesting quote. So, Jones, there's a real possibility of, of double dipping there in the sense that we had a, a really v virulent, um, dip you know, recession. We, we're starting to get out of it, but there's a chance that we could go back down again. Is that a real possibility? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you cannot trust the market. So, for people who are looking for the economy to improve in the short term, I would say be careful. You know, I mean, especially the U.S. economy, be careful. 
you know, don't don't make plans that are based specifically on that. Don't make business plans that are based specifically on a big recovery in the next five to ten years because you just don't know what can happen and there's a lot that can go wrong. So be be conservative. And I think part of the big problem, as you said, is that a lot of the people that cause the mess are still in place, right? A lot of these of these um, you know Wall Street types are still in place. Yes, you, you've seen very little, if any, uh, criminal type prosecutions. You've seen very little replacement of top executives. In fact, many of the same characters are getting record-breaking bonuses right now, incentivizing them to do more of what they were doing before. So um, it's, it's, just, it's just not a good situation yet. You know, it always amazes me about the United States. You know, they place so much emphasis on going after so much effort and manpower, on going after a poor person, you know, that's probably smoking a joint or, or doing some drugs or something. And then you have these guys, you know, stealing millions destroying the economy, destroying lives, and nothing has been done. It's, it's really amazing. Quite an interesting society. Yes, the United States leads the world both in terms of the percentage of its population and the absolute total number of its people in prison. It's the number one prison state in the world right now. And yet this is the same country that just collapsed the world's economy, and the people responsible, virtually none of them are in prison. If you think about someone like Madoff, who did go to prison, he was nothing. Madoff was nothing compared to AIG. Tiny. You know, and he's gone to prison, and we're the bigger bigger players in, in causing a crisis for the entire world. It's very concerning because it says that something is completely out of whack in terms of what people consider to be a crime and, and what people go to prison for. Yeah, quite interesting. And something that we have as, as a society, we will certainly have to look at. And um, I mean, I don't see any, any, any insight like you. And I, I'm very... I'm very um, cautious very you know i'm not very optimistic about the future given those very same reasons that you pointed out and and unless wall street is reformed i just don't see any changes happening yes yeah it's, it's quite 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 um interested well jones um you know it's been it's been fascinating talking to you i don't know if there's anybody that i would like to to call if they would like to ask you a question or or talk to you. The number, if you'd like to talk to Jones quickly, because we are just about um, wrapping up the session, 301-458-7467. That's 301-458-7467. So if you'd like to ask Jones a question or about something that we discussed or any, on, on any issue, either in the, in the science world, because Jones was an astrophysicist, a, a, he was a physicist working, as we said, doing research on the phenomena we know as black holes, but he, at some point in his life, he dropped that. And, and Jones, talking about your life, when you were at, at, at the Bank of America, you were in your, in your, early, in your 20s, right? Still quite young, still. Yes. Yeah, so you, not only did you, were, were you, you know, I mean, you broke a lot of ceilings in STEM in terms of your age and, as all, and also in terms of the fact that you're probably one of the only blacks in these um, organizations doing that kind of thing. So certainly something to be proud of. Yes, at, at AIG, I was definitely the youngest guy in sight. Um, I was the most junior guy around. Uh, and it was a very interesting experience, very, very interesting, just to see the, the size of the money involved, the egos and what people's priorities were, you know, it was a very, very interesting experience. To see people making, getting huge bonuses, complaining so much about how bad their taxes were. I mean, bonuses that you and I would make our eyes water, you know. It was just an amazing experience. Amazing. Wow. Jones, um, is there any thought of, of doing a book or, or writing a book or about your experiences? I mean, you have quite a lot to to tell and, and, and to speak about. Have you given that any kind of thought? Uh, yeah, a little, but, you know, I'm so busy with daily life right now, it's, it's not really a, a priority. But at some point, sure, 
at some point, definitely. Yeah, I certainly think that there is, you know, certainly a need a need for that. And, and um, you know, given your unique perspective, you know, on all of these issues, it would certainly be a great, a great, a great help. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one, one story, actually, I, I can remember a guy I was working with at AIG. Um, you know, we just got our bonuses and the guy was really mad because Clinton, Bill Clinton had just raised our taxes by, by 10% because we were all in the top tax bracket, all of us. And he had raised the top tax bracket from 36% to 39.6% marginal tax rate. And the guy was complaining about what a communist Clinton was and you know, he was going on and on. And then to console himself, he went outside and he bought a Mercedes convertible for cash, you know, just to calm, calm himself down, you know. I mean, is is that kind of giddy greed? You know, um, Jones, we have, a, okay, the person, the person seemed to have... Um, can, I would, if the person would like to join the conversation, please, um, please retry your call. But yeah, it's kind of interesting eh? that that um, you know you have this giddy greed that 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 you know where's the limit? I mean, you know, is 10, 10 million enough? No, is it fifty? Is it a hundred million? And is that kinds of is that kind of greed? I believe that that people are, are really fed up of. And as, as we said, the the impact is there because on, on, a, on an everyday basis. The American family is feeling it, and the problems are there, and, and, and it's really something that we should be concerned about. Jones, I hope I've not lost you. No, I'm here. I'm oh, you're there. Okay, great, great. Yeah. Because I think somebody was somebody was trying to call. Okay, let's see if we can get this caller in. Hello, caller. Yeah. Good afternoon. Like a regular now. I want to respond to, to the, not, well, not respond, but I just want to make a statement on, on your, your guest, Mr. Murphy there, and his honesty. And I would like to really uh, mention the fact that or whoever the politician in Dominica that told him that they had no need for him or whatever, because, and I'm going to say to the world that our ignorance is one of our downfalls. You have a bandit just like on Wall Street that he just blew the whistle on. And that's the problem in Dominica right now. You see a man of his stature being exposed to one of the highest uh, financial markets in the world. You can't get no bigger than America's financial market. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And, and he is at that level. So now them little hooligans we have running the country down there don't want him to come down there and to see what they're doing because he's a man of his word. This guy is a real man. He's got backbone. You understand? Yes. If he could, if he could go up there in Wall Street and try to put them people straight and tell them how he feels. You think it's them little hooligans we have in Dominica that he can't stand up to? So them guys don't want to have to deal with a man like that. A man like that is too good a man for them. And the reason why they do all that more with foreigners, because a lot of foreign people come to the Caribbean. A lot of them come as ex-convicts. A lot of them are thieves. I'm going to take you an example. That guy Stanford in Antigua, right? That guy had a problem already in America. He was already doing some bogus business in America where he was in trouble. So he finds a greener pasture in the Caribbean where when they come to the Caribbean, we don't do background check on them. We just give them open doors and put the red carpet out and just everything is yours. Just come have my guest. I mean, be my guest and everything is yours. And these guys come down and they know we don't do background check. But we, as the children of the Caribbean, Caribbean nationals, when you come, they're looking at you, you look a poor boy was running around in Maho, St. Joe, wherever you come from, Roseau, and you come and tell me you're going to do business and this and that. And, and they don't really realize you went out to get that. You, if you come home, you'll be able to contribute. And this 
This guy you're talking to there now, the man is very impressive. And I think he wait too long to, to write his book. He might not sell that book. He could he could be another set of million dollars. He, he, he will have a bestseller right now if he bring that book out. Absolutely. Well, Colin, uh, Emerson, thank you very much for, for joining the conversation. Uh, Jones, how do you respond? Uh, Emerson, thank you very much for your kind words. And, you know, it's, 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 very, it's very hurtful to me emotionally when I, I try to get involved in Dominican affairs and certain policymakers make a, another decision. Um, but, you know, at the same time, hopefully, as they keep doing, making these decisions and they have experience with, with, with other parties, they may decide to give me a try and I'll be here. I'll still be a Dominican. I'm going to be a Dominican for a long time yet. So my heart is, is there still in Dominica. My, my, my desire to help the country is unabated. It's still very strong. And I hope I get a chance to do it. All right. Thank you very much, Cora. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let me just thank, thank the caller for, for joining us this afternoon. And again, we have just a couple minutes left, Jones. Um, so if anybody want to call, I think now is the time to do so. The number three. Zero one four five eight seven four six seven. All right, Jones. As we as we as we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to leave us um, with this afternoon? Um, in addition to what what I just said, I just want to make a point that there are people in the government government who who want to see me involved, who have made an effort, and who have really reached out to me. And those people know who they are, and I'm very thankful to them. I mean, these are old friends; they're like brothers to me, and um, you know. I thank them for that. All right, that's good. And I really hope, as I said, that, you know, and I believe that uh, we have enough uh, potential, those of us that were birthed in Dominica, those of us that got our education, our, our, our foundation in Dominica, that will definitely get a chance to really go back out there and, you know, and help uh, do something for our country. And we'll be given that opportunity and we'll be welcomed with open arms. And, and uh, um, certainly we're all Dominicans. We all think very fondly of Dominica. And here you are. I mean, you are, you are all the way in Rome. You could be completely divorced from Dominica. Yet you, you make the effort to read up, to keep informed of what's going on, to reach out. And then you must be commended for that. It, it doesn't matter where I am on the planet. Dominica is my home. Dominica is my identity. And that's who I am. And I, I want to single out one person in particular who has really kept me connected with Dominica, and that's Gabriel Christian. Gabriel has, you know, many things going on. He's doing very well with his business. He's a busy man. But he's just constantly reaching out to me everywhere I've been uh, and, you know, urging me and helping me to stay connected with what's going on in Dominica. And Gabriel has, has gotten caught in some controversies and things like that, but that's the kind of spirit the country needs, you know. It's, it's people who, are, who care about the country, who have the talent, and who want to do things for the country. And uh, I would really hate to see, you know, whether it be, be personality conflicts or political conflicts or things like that, um, leave the country behind and, le and, and get us to lose the value of the talent. We're, we're a small population. We're very few people. There's no differences that we, we have that, that compare to what we have in common. Yeah, you're absolutely correct on that, Jones. And, and um, on that note, let me thank you for taking the time to be with us this afternoon and, and for coming on the Dominican.net radio. It certainly will not be our last conversation. We'll continue to be in touch, and, and we'll definitely bring you back to talk to our audience. Thank you very much, Thompson. I, I really appreciated being able to talk to you and to all of your listeners. All right, and let me just say, I just got an, an, an email from an old friend, um, Jerome Pascoe, asking to make sure I say hello to you and, and um, to wish you well as you continue, as you continue your work there. In Jerome, the it's great to hear from you. Great to hear from you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jones. And of course, um, I'm sure after this broadcast, um, people will be, will be making um, contact with you. 
in terms of uh, further investment opportunities in your company, Vector Fund. Thank you. All right. Thank you, and have a great evening out there in Rome.